We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up, Justin Picardie, the author, fashion writer, and former editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar, discusses her latest book, Miss Dior, which reframes the story of the famed French fashion house, looking at the life and influence of Christian Dior's sister, Catherine. Our host for today's discussion is the academic and broadcaster Shahida Bari. Shahida is professor at the London College of Fashion at University of the Arts London. Here's Shahida with more. Dior is a name that resonates with glamour, elegance and luxury around the world. The French fashion house was born in Paris in 1946, just as Europe was recovering from the losses and destruction of the Second World War. Christian Dior breathes new life into that old world with daring and beautiful designs. For the following decade, he was the arbiter of fashion. But while Christian Dior's name has been synonymous with fashion and fragrance, it's his sister Catherine whose story we're learning about today. Hers is a different story. A woman who dedicated herself to the French resistance, was captured by the Gestapo and imprisoned in a German concentration camp. She survived all of that and inspired her brother, a figure of hope, strength and femininity. It's a story that writer, journalist and editor Justine Piketty has been retracing in her book, Miss Dior, a story of courage and couture. Justine, welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm so excited to talk to you because very little has been previously known about Catherine, Catherine Dior. What, what drew you to this story? Well, originally I thought or I was hoping to write a biography of Christian Dior and I didn't know anything about Catherine and really nobody knew anything about Catherine. I hadn't quite found my way into the Dior 
biography, but I've been doing a lot of research. I've been in the Dior archives. And then I was sitting in what had been Christian Dior's garden in the south of France, in, in rural Provence, up in the hills of Provence. And I was talking to one of the Dior archivists, and he mentioned for the first time Catherine Dior, Christian's younger sister. And he said that that Miss Dior, the perfume that had been, um, was Christian Dior's first scent. He'd launched it at the same time as his deadly collection, The New Look, was named in honour of Catherine. And that Catherine grew the roses for this perfume and that her rose meadows were still very close to Christian's home and garden where we were sitting. And then he said almost as if, by way of an afterthought. Um, and Catherine was in the French resistance and was deported to a concentration camp. And I was so astonished to hear this. I mean, I was astonished in so many ways, but I said, you know, why has nobody talked about this before? So I became determined to find out more about Catherine, but the book is is not... Miss Dior, the title of the book, it's not just about Catherine Dior. I mean, the book is still does tell the story of Christiane as well as Catherine. But I think it's impossible to write about Christiane Dior and to understand Christiane Dior without understanding his relationship with Catherine. That becomes apparent in, in the book as we as we read along. Can you can you tell me a little bit about your research process? You you mentioned leafing through the archives at Dior, and, and also the, the book begins in the gardens of Christian Dior's chateau in Provence, as you as you also mentioned. So so how did you research this book? How did you go about filling in the blanks that, that are, are Catherine's story? Well, whenever I write, and this is my sixth book, I always try and spend time in the places where the people I'm writing about have lived. Obviously, my starting point was the Dior archives in Paris, but there are also, there's a, a Christian Dior museum in Granville on the coast of Normandy, which had been the Dior's family home. So it was important, first of all, to go to the Dior archives in Paris, but then go to the family archives in Normandy. I mean, as a writer, I, I love archives. I think there is something, well, first of all, so important about going to primary resources to pick up a piece of paper with handwriting on it or a sketch on it, where even though people that wrote letters or drew pictures might now be dead, the ink remains. And there's something magical about that. But it was also incredibly important to be in the places where they had grown up, Christian and Catherine had grown up, and also where they had lived together. Um, so in Normandy, Paris and Provence. So those were, were my starting points. Can you tell me a little bit more about how they grew up, how where they were raised and, and what their family life was like? Yeah, I mean, they were born into um, a prosperous family in the early 20th century, um, what was known in France as La Belle Epoque, the Beautiful Age, or in America, it was known as the Gilded Era. But it's it's a golden age. It's the era before the widespread trauma of the First Cold War and then the Wall Street crash 
the Great Depression and the Second World War. And their father had inherited the family business, uh, which was a fertilizer business. Um, he'd inherited that. And the Dior family at this point was synonymous in the 19th century with the stench of, of guano, um, which is penguin poo, basically, which had been in, they imported to France and then turned into fertilizer, agriculture and horticultural fertilizer. And so they were a prosperous family and their oldest brother, actually, who was quite a lot older than them, fought in the First World War. And after the war, just a series of, of personal traumas happened to the family. So their other brother developed schizophrenia and this was a time when there was no treatment and he was institutionalized. Then their mother died of septicemia when Catherine was just 13. And then their father lost all his money in the aftermath of the Wall Street crash. So they went from living in, you know, bourgeois comfort and prosperity in a big house with a beautiful garden. And then everything fell apart. And their father, for obscure reasons, um, ended up, I think, just to escape the humiliation of having lost all his money. And he also was grief-stricken after the loss of his wife and the illness of, of his son. He ended up in this tiny little small holding in, in the remote part of Provence, but that was in the centre and still is of the rose growing area. And Christian at this point had actually also suffered um, because of the Wall Street crash. He had set up his, his first business, which was a modern art gallery, and he'd shown great aesthetic judgment and taste. He's, he was showing um, artists like Dali and Picasso, but Again, in the aftermath of the crash, nobody wanted to buy modern art or surreal art. So then he had to earn a living and he taught himself to do fashion illustrations. First of all, which he sold to newspapers and magazines, and then um, he sold them to couture houses. And as soon as he was able, he sent for his younger sister, Catherine, to go and live with him in Paris. Catherine had been living with my father in this very remote part of Provence. Um, so she went to live with her brother in Paris and he got her a job in the couture industry in the 30s in what was known as a maison de mode, selling accessories and gloves and hats. And she also became his first model. So in the Dior archives, I found pictures of Catherine, you know, modelling her brother's first creations. But this was before he was famous. I mean, he hadn't set up his own couture house. He was a freelance designer at this point. But they had a life of kind of bohemian freedom together in Paris at this point. And I think that economic necessity, both of them had to earn a living. And, and there's no doubt that Catherine discovered a kind of independence and freedom, which she wouldn't have done as the daughter of a, you know, a prosperous industrialist. But then their lives were, were thrown into chaos again by the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939. What, what happens then? How, how, how did Catherine respond to the war? What, what happens then? Christian joined the French army, but France fell very rapidly with the invasion of the German troops. France 
capitulated and was occupied very rapidly. And Christian was fortunately for him, was not taken a prisoner of war, and he managed to make his way back to their father's little home in Provence, as did Catherine. And there, like many people in France, they there was just no food. There was rationing in place, but even the rationing meant there was very little food. And they started growing vegetables alongside roses. Then eventually Christian made the decision, because the family were destitute, to return to Paris. And he started working for um, a couturier called Lucien Lelong in occupied Paris at the end of 1941. And Catherine, at this point, joined the French resistance down in the south of France. She was still just in her early 20s. And it was a very unusual thing to do. At this point, there was probably a maximum 100,000 members of the French resistance in a population of 40 million. And I think that when we look back on this era of, of history of occupied France, I think there's a myth that you know, the majority of people um, resisted. It's really not true. Vichy France and the collaboration, which was an official French policy that was enacted by the official French government, which also enacted its own anti-Semitic legislation. It didn't need the Nazis to make Vichy France, as it was known, enact its own anti-Semitic legislation. So Catherine was one of a very few people who risked their lives by joining the resistance. How was it that she came to join the resistance? Well, she undertook her first act of resistance was to go and get a radio so that she could listen to the BBC, listen to the band broadcasts of Charles de Gaulle, General de Gaulle, who had um, escaped to London and was broadcasting on the BBC, calling on his fellow countrymen. And it, he called them countrymen um, to resist. And de Gaulle was the leader of the Free French in London. And Catherine, merely by going to get a radio to listen to his broadcast, was risking arrest and imprisonment. But when she went to go and get this radio, she met somebody, uh, a man who was older than her, who was the same age as her brother Christian. And like Christian, he'd studied politics in Paris at the same university. And he was already in a particular section of the resistance, which was an intelligence gathering, net gathering network called F2, which was a Franco-Polish network that had been set up by Poles that had found themselves behind enemy lines in occupied France. And so they were gathering intelligence on behalf actually of British intelligence. So their intelligence gathering activities were going directly to London, both to Polish intelligence and to British intelligence. And it was absolutely crucial when it came to the Allies being able to plan to invade or retake France. I'm assuming it was incredibly dangerous work too. She was found out and, and she was arrested. What, what happened there? Well, she was betrayed by somebody who'd infiltrated the, the network, a, a young woman of the same age, a French woman of the same age, 
And in 19, by 1944, she was living with her brother Christian in Paris, who was sheltering her and other members of the resistance of her network. And she was arrested by um, a, a unit of the Gestapo that in Paris that actually had a number of French people in it who were known as the Gestapoust because they were French. And she was arrested, tortured, and didn't give away a single name or, or piece of information. And as a result, she saved her partner's life, her best friend's life, her brother's life, and everybody in her particular part of the resistance that hadn't been arrested. So she went underwent some really horrific torture in Paris and then was imprisoned first in Paris and then in an internment camp on the outskirts of Paris. And then finally she was deported on the last train out of Paris, just days before the liberation of Paris in August 1944. And she was deported to Ravensbrück concentration camp. So she was on a train where there were about 2,000 men and about 400 women. And the men were sent to Buchenwald concentration camp and, and the women to Ravensbrück, which was Hitler's only concentration camp specifically for women. And there she arrived. It was a, a week's journey. And she arrived in this terrible place. And I knew in order to research the book that I would have to go to Ravensbrück myself, which I felt a kind of real reluctance to do so because it's such a dark part of, of history. And again, even though I'm half Jewish and there were people on my father's side of the family, his extended family, who died in the Holocaust, I had never heard of, of Ravensbrook. I didn't know there was a place specifically for women. And it's interesting, when I told people that I was researching this book and you know, talking about Christian Catherine Dior um, and Catherine being deported to a camp. It's astonishing how many people would say to me, oh, gosh, we didn't know that Dior was Jewish. There was this assumption that the only people that were deported to camps were Jewish. But in fact, that's not the case, um, that there were people at Ravensbrook from many different countries, including there were British women there, who had been in the SOE, Special Operations Exec Executive, and parachuted into France to help with the resistance. There were members of the Czech resistance, of the Dutch resistance. There were a couple of Americans there that had been helping the resistance in France. And there were Polish women, Russian women, and there were German women who had also you know, resisted the Nazi regime. So there were many different nationalities and Ravensbrook was a place, there was a gas chamber there, but they used also something called extermination through labour, so slave labour. And Catherine was used as one of many, many thousands of slave labourers. And she was moved first from Ravensbrook to three different sub-camps where she was used as a slave labourer. Each time I went, there was really nobody else there. So unlike Auschwitz, which really is a place of pilgrimage, Ravensbrück, although it has a very good archive and a very powerful memorial site and museum, it's really not widely visited. There was one French woman who was still alive who I talked to, and there was one um, Hungarian Jewish woman who Catherine had met, um, who was just 14 at the time. And 
their testimony was very, very powerful and very important. And so those chapters in the book come both from my, my archival research, going to those places and also talking to those true home survivors. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com Dot com. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. That's remarkable, isn't it? Piecing that story together seems like such powerful and important work. You said earlier that, that Christian was, was fighting during the war. What was happening to Couture during the war? What, what was the state of fashion during the war and, and then after in the, in the years of recovery? Well, initially the Couture houses closed, so when war broke out, and then they reopened. And 
there is a myth really about the mature industry in Paris that it was just, you know, the, the German occupiers, the Nazis that were buying couture for their wives and girlfriends and mistresses. And it's true, um, Goebbels, you know, loved luxury buying couture. But in fact, there was also a very healthy couture market because wherever there is war, there is money. And there were black marketeers, there were collaborators that were making a lot of money. And so there were French buyers of couture. At the end of the war, really the French economy, as the economy right across Europe was in in ruins. And the infrastructure of of Europe was just devastated uh, because of bombing, trains, factories, um, harbours, everything was in ruins. But the couture industry had survived. And when Christian Dior made this really radical decision to set up his own couture house, I think that it had a lot to do with Catherine's return. So Catherine, astonishingly, survived and returned to Paris after the end of the war, so May 1945, and Christian was there to meet her at the train station. And he was so shocked, he didn't recognise her, obviously because she was a masonator, her head had been shaved. But she did recover, and physically she recovered first by going to their home in Provence, there's a letter that she wrote in the period saying that, you know, just to be in the sunlight and see her beloved roses again helped her recover. But then she needed to earn a living and she was awarded a license to deal in cut flowers. So she became a wholesale florist in Paris and she lived with her brother, who at this point was still working for the couture house of Lucien Lelong. But it's at this period that he begins to conceive of of what he calls um, a flower woman who decides to launch a scent in honour of Catherine, which he will call Mistral, and the the main ingredients are the roses um, from Provence that are from their own rose fields in Provence. But he also decides he's going to launch his own small couture house and that after the ugliness of war, he wants to design something hopeful and beautiful, which is a very remarkable and radical thing to do. It really does revolutionise fashion overnight. There's very few moments where you can say that in fashion. I mean, it, it happens maybe less than once in a generation. Sometimes it will take several generations for that kind of, for fashion to be revolutionised. And you see it with Chanel and the little black dress, which happens at the end of the First World War and after the the darkness of the First World War and the first global flu pandemic, where literally everybody is wearing black as the colour of mourning. And Chanel launches Chanel number five in the little black dress. And that becomes associated with the jazz age, with modernism, with female independence. And then 25 years later, you see Dior doing something as radical and remarkable, which is when clothes are still being rationed, when fabric is rationed, when there's still austerity, 
Dior creates this incredibly romantic look. And he actually calls it la corolle, which is um, the, the French for part of the flower. Carmel Snow, the band editor of Harper's Bazaar, calls it the new look, and everybody else starts calling it the new look. And it looks new because it uses a lot of fabric, it's very romantic, and it's also, everything is very soft and padded. So the hips are padded, the bust is padded, the shoulders are soft and padded. And I think that this arises directly because Catherine and, and women like her were so shockingly thin when they returned that Dior, whether it's subconsciously or not, is designing clothes that are both softly padded, but also it's almost like a sort of act of architecture. It's, it's by creating this soft padding, it's like creating a sort of safe, soft place for his sister. And in every single collection, he only survived 10 years before he died, too young of a heart attack. But in every single one of his couture collections, he would design something for his sister, Catherine. Dior becomes synonymous with very beautiful party dresses and ball gowns and Princess Margaret's you know, famous 21st birthday dress, you know, the, the dresses for, I suppose, as it were, a young princess. But he has, is also, in every collection, he's doing clothes that grown-up women can wear. So there's always a jacket, a skirt. And I think those are the kind of clothes that he's making for his very independent sister, Catherine, who never marries, she remains with her partner, who she met in the French resistance. They never marry. She remains with Dior for the rest of her life. She continues to earn her own living, first as a florist, and then she gives that business up and as a rose grower. And she continues to grow the roses that are used for her brother's perfumes. And she carries on working until she is 90. And she brings, she dies of, a, of old age. She dies gently in her sleep, but having brought in her final rose harvest, um, which she does, and then she, she dies one June. A very, very principled, independent, idealistic, astonishingly strong woman, but whose story was never told, partly because there became such a taboo in France right from the time of the liberation of Paris, to not talk about how widespread collaboration was. So I think that de Gaulle, General de Gaulle, had to make a decision with the liberation of Paris for France to be unified. And the way to do that was to sort of, this myth that really begins with the liberation of Paris, when de Gaulle gives this famous speech when he says, you know, France, France has been martyred but France has liberated itself, the whole of France, the two France. So this myth is born that everybody resisted, nobody collaborated, and everybody has to be unified together. And that means that the stories of women like Catherine become largely forgotten. You describe her as a, as a spectral presence throughout the writing of the book. And in fact, the word discreet is used often to describe her. Do you think 
that she and, and as you describe the, the later part of her life, it's quiet. Is that deliberate on her behalf? That she didn't leave a written record because she thought no one was interested, or that she was seeking a, a, the protection of that obscurity, that quietness? Well, I think that it was a combination of things. I mean, I think that for her, the way healing for her was through the garden. It was she'd inherited a love of gardening from her mother, as did her brother. And for anybody that loves gardening, as I do, you know, there is something, there is so much solace in, you know, literally your hands in the soil being grounded. So I saw her, her medical records are part of her records in the resistance archives. And she was psychologically as well as physically scarred by her treatment, both by the French Gestapo and then in Germany. And I think that the things that she suffered were very, very difficult to, to describe. I think that she talked to her closest friend, Lillianne, who I write about, and whose son was Catherine's godson. Catherine remained close to, and her godson was more than a godson. Catherine was unable to have children because of the physical damage that she'd suffered. And I spoke to him, but I think that... Lillianne, her best friends, had not been in the camps with her. And I think that most people that had been in the camps, when you look at their testimony, they literally say it is indescribable. It is beyond words. And I think that for Catherine to survive, first of all, probably people couldn't bear to hear it. And then if silence becomes the norm, which it did in France, even if you wanted to talk about it, if people don't want to hear it, then silence becomes a way of life. But for me, her rose fields are so powerful and they're still there now. And her to plant a tree, as she did, is an act of hope in the future. And to carry on tending roses, as she did, I mean, her rose fields are still there and they're still producing roses for rural perfumes today. But her little house where I went to stay, she planted a lot of trees around it. And I think that even in that part of France, there were collaborators. So every village, there would have, you would have had to see people that had collaborated with the Germans, as well as, you know, there were members of the resistance there. And I remember there was just outside... Um, so her brother lived very close. Christian lived very close. And at the end of um, his drive in his home in Provence, there's a memorial to a young member of the French resistance who was shot there, who, who died, you know, literally just by his front gate. And she was incredibly young. But this young man's brother had joined the French version of the SS and so was a French Nazi. So even in families, you know, there was this terrible division. So in your own village, in your own community, you would see every day somebody that you knew had collaborated. How do you go on? How do you make a life for yourself in those circumstances? As we know from the story of Primo Levi and others, you know, many people that survived the camps then killed themselves or 
their physical or, or you know, mental scarring, both physiological and psychological, would mean that they might not you know, live as long as they might otherwise. Catherine lived a long and meaningful life in truly remarkable ways, but still it would be wrong to say that it had that her experiences had not left her profoundly scarred. Thank you, Justine, for telling us Catherine's story. That was Justine Piketty, author of Misty All, a story of courage and couture, which is now out in paperback. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I'm Shahid Abari. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.